Welcome to the Uncapped Podcast, presented by Roast House Pub and Idiom Brewing Company in Frederick, Maryland, as well as Havoc Brew Supply, the one-stop shop for all of your brewery's needs. Check them out at hophavoc.com. Hey everyone, I'm your host Chris Sands, and today I am joined by Mark Fiertaller, the head distiller at Whiskey Dollback, joining me all the way from Arizona, where I believe it's roughly like 3,000 degrees right now. You know, just slightly less than hotter on the surface of the sun. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, they, they keep talking about that on the radio in the morning and I, I don't think I could survive. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it, you, yet you hate to keep saying, you know, those old rote, uh, appropriatisms. Oh, you know, it's, it's not the heat, it's the humidity. It really is, you know. You at have some it, you point, have it, it becomes the heat. <laughs> at 112, it's really close yeah. to it being the heat. But we're, you know, it's it's monsoon season, so we're at 30, 35 percent humidity right now. But yeah, it has been unrelenting. It is now f- more than 40 days of 100 degree temperatures here in Arizona. That that is miserable sounding. Um, we're supposed to get like a heat wave here. Uh, soon like towards the end of this week i think it's like the heat index is into the hundreds thankfully i am uh, retreating north of the border uh so hopefully it's a little cooler in canada next week when i'm out of the area um before we jump in the story of whiskey delback i did have i had thought of some questions that have to do with heat does that i mean i assume your rick house is not uh climate controlled like every other one in the world, you um, you are correct. Do, do extreme temperatures like that, uh, which I would just, in general, you're probably more used to that. Although it still has been exceptional, does that have much of an effect on the barrel aging process? It really does. Um, so we we have what we call swamp coolers um, inside of our production space. So we're we're small enough that our production space and our what I call our quote unquote Rick House are all part of the same area. Uh, but yeah, it's it's not just the high temperatures. We also have these really aggressive uh, diurnal shifts. So in a twenty four hour period, we're getting thirty forty degrees. Uh, a good example is like today, you know, I, when I left the house, it was 80 degrees and it's going to get up to, I think, 112, 113 today. Uh, so that's, you know, 30 right there. And then it's going to cool down and winter, same thing happens, you know, winter I'll leave for work and it'll be 33 degrees and I'll go home and it's 70. And so not only do you get, you know, this really aggressive push and pull because of these huge shifts, you get a lot of oxidation happening within the oak itself. And so, yeah, it just, it creates these really interesting, really complex whiskeys. Uh, You'll hear people who will kind of balk at the idea of terroir within whiskey. And, you know, I will, I will come down firmly on the side of there's not terroir (laughs) in the sense that maybe you can taste where that grain came from, but you know, if you're leaning into the challenges and the opportunities that your your aging area presents you, you can create something that is very much of the space that it was made. And I think that's what we do here at Whiskey Del Bach. Is that harder to kind of plan for or does it happen on a regular, like regular enough basis that it the same, you get the same effect from batch to batch or barrel to barrel? 
you know, there's there's inconsistencies ac- across everything, um, but it's it's relatively you can kind of depend on it enough that you can at least plan your blending around it. Um, we have uh, here in Tucson, and I guess all of Arizona has what's called a, a monsoon season. So fifty percent of the moisture that we get in the air comes uh, between I want to say it's the middle of June to end of September. And that is when all of this moisture is coming in um, off of the ocean, finally making it, you know, past the coast inland. And so most of the year we've got this like 5, 10, 15% relative humidity here right now because we're in monsoon. It's in, again, the 30s to 40s. And then we'll have these huge dumps of rain. Uh, it's not just it's not just the heat. It is the humidity that also has an impact <laughs> on, on how it ages. Uh for us, we can consistently count on 10% angel share every year we age. It is just that aggressive because so, that so was going to be my next question. Does that <laughs> super low, dry air, low humidity, dry air cause you to lose a lot more to evaporation? We really do. Uh, the nice thing is we gain proof, um, you know, because you, as spirits age, they seek stabilization. And so when you're aging in humid environments, you tend to lose proof in your barrel. And when you're in humid environment or excuse me, in uh, dry environments, you tend to lose water. So you're gaining oh, AV, okay. but you're still losing that volume. So our, we have we have a barrel entry point of 110 proof or 55% ABV. And typically when we harvest, we're, we've gained if not a half a percent of AB, ABV, sometimes one or even 2%, depending on how long it sat. So you're able to make up some of that loss whenever you proof down to, to the bottle strength. It's still a volume loss. You know, we still, we still lose our, what we call our PGs, our proof gallons. Um, but, but for me, I don't know, maybe it's, it's probably just a placebo effect, but it is kind of nice to be like, yeah, we lost volume, but hey, we've got a little bit more of a punchy spirit coming yeah. out of the barrel. <laughs> so you've you've now been a head distiller in an extremely humid area mm-hmm. and in an extremely dry area. Which do you prefer for the results that you get from barrel aging? Or are they just different? You know, I always feel like it's such a cop out when I answer like this, because uh, like, which is better? They're different. Um, it, it's there. There are positives about aging in a humid environment. You get these very interesting, very soft, very kind of nuanced whiskeys uh, from more humid environments. But then, you know, coming out here to this very dry, very intense fluctuation, we get these very bold, very punchy notes. And so, to me. Probably right now, yeah, I prefer what I'm making right now because it's what I'm tasting <laughs> every day. It's what I'm blending. It's what I'm working with. But uh, you know, it's it, it's a fight you'll fight. Just like I'll have people come in. We do copper pot distillation here. Every other distillery I've been at, we did hybrid distillation. So you could switch it as copper, switch it as columns, switch it as both. And I will fight. One's not better than the other. It just is. What do you want to accomplish? So that's, that's my non-answer answer yeah. to which I prefer. That's why I went ahead and just gave you the cop out of it's different. <laughs> yes, it's, and it's the, it's the truth. It's, They're all special uh, you know, in been, their own way. <laughs> 100%. I've been, you know, I've been distilling for over seven years now. Uh, I've been in the industry for 14. 
the the more I know, the less I know. And and the longer I've been in it, the less I know. And I still have things that I am very stringent, like, no, this is the way to do it. But more and more, the more experience I've had, it's like, hey, you know, one is not inherently better than the other. Just what are you trying to accomplish? All right. So let's, uh, let's rewind a little bit and start to learn a little bit more about uh, Delbach. Um, when, when did, uh, when were they opened? Uh, so Whiskey Del Bach, we opened our doors officially in 2011. Uh, kind of the, the idea came about, um, our founder, uh, well, I should say our co-founder, Stephen Paul, he and his wife, Elaine owned a furniture business here in Tucson that specialized in mesquite wood. Uh, if you're not familiar with mesquite, mesquite is this very beautiful, very gnarled, very twisted wood that is um, indigenous to the American Southwest. And uh, Stephen kind of, when he first became a carpenter, wanted to work with, I think the term he uses is beautiful grains. And that tends to be things like rainforest woods, which there's you know a lot of ethical challenges with making furniture yeah. with, with rainforest wood. And so uh, he was born in California, but was raised and grew up here in Tucson and, you know, kind of saw these beautiful grains. It's a challenging wood to work with. And he started creating these just absolutely beautiful pieces of, you know, he would call them functional, but I think a lot of people who have his pieces would call them art. Uh, he and his wife were also big scotch drinkers. I would say I'm contractually obligated to tell this joke. He would take the mesquite scraps home. They would barbecue with them and he would tell Elaine, there go our profits up in smoke. And check mark, <laughs> I can count on my paycheck this week. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so he... I'm guessing that's part of every tour. People... <laughs> Oh yeah. Oh, part of every tour. I mean, it's, it's, it's a key, it's a key part of the founding of the company. Uh, yeah. but yeah, he, he and his wife, Elaine were big scotch drinkers in particular. They liked space sides, which as you know, space sides are not a traditionally smoky peaty. They're very light. They're very, uh, floral. And one night they're burning these mesquite scraps and Elaine has this idea. She says, you know, in Scotland, they use peat to dry the malt. Has anyone ever considered using mesquite to do that? And if you know Stephen, Stephen is a person who, once he is intrigued by an idea, just kind of jumps in with both legs. And what ended up happening was he taught himself to floor malt. He taught himself to distill. And that was around 2006. Oh, super simple things to do. Oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> while still running a furniture company. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and so his daughter, Amanda, who's our other co-founder, she um, was up in New York. She was in the city and had moved back home. And this was around 2010, 2011. It was like, hey, you know, this idea that you've had for making single malts. And this was a time when nobody was really making American single malts. Or uh, I can't say nobody. Very few were. And then it wasn't a big influence within the market. They were like, hey, let's, let's see if this has legs. Let's, let's create this distillery. So Stephen and Amanda in 2011 incorporated uh, Hamilton Distillers Group, which is our official name, but Whiskey Del Bach is now what we do our business as, which is the name of our American single malts that we make. And so uh, coming up in November, it's going to be 12 years since the founding of Del Bach. And it is, uh, if, if you've never been to Southern Arizona or Baja Arizona, as uh, people here call it, it is, it's stunning. It is 
very much a place of um, of uniqueness. It is striking. The mesquite, uh, cooking with mesquite, building with mesquite is so entrenched within the area that, you know, he kind of got this idea. Initially, let's learn how to, um, let's learn how to make it unsmoked. You know, let's, let's first do that. Yeah. Let's make an unsmoked single regular, malt. Yeah. yeah. And then after he taught himself to floor malt, he started playing around with smoking the malt that he had made with these mesquite scraps and literally mesquite scraps, like from the, from the beginning when Whiskey Del Bach first started, like now when we smoke our malt, we just get piles and piles and piles of mesquite wood. There are photos of Stephen and the early distillery team taking a chair leg like, oh, here, here's a leg that didn't work <laughs> and throwing it into the fire to smoke them all. So, so you guys do all of the mesquite smoking yourself. We do. Uh, when oh, we first awesome. started, yeah, when we first started, we did 100%. I say we, I, I wasn't here back then. But, yeah. uh, Whiskey Del Bach uh, was doing 100% of their own malting in-house. And about eight years ago, we moved into our current, uh, our current space because this started out of the back of his wood shop. And uh, as we got into this bigger space and production ramped up, it became pretty clear. It wasn't really feasible from a financial and from a labor standpoint to do all of our own malting because for it to be an American single malt, it can only have malted barley. That is the only grain we can use. Uh, so we do source our unsmoked malt. Um, that actually comes from a malt house in just outside of Fort Worth called Tex Malt. Um, we like to work with them because they're, they're close. Uh, we would love to do like a local malt. Arizona is not very conducive to two row barley, which is. Yeah. I can't imagine that's a, a large <laughs> crop. <laughs> no. Uh, but yeah, so we, but we do still malt and smoke our smoked malt that we use for some of our smoke products. So that is a two row barley variety that we get from Colorado grown in Colorado, the raw seats brought into us and we have a, very unique custom built malt house out back that we can do 5,000 pounds of malt at a time to create what we call our MS or our mesquite smoked malt. That's really cool. Is that a fairly unique thing for a distillery? Cause I've never heard it's, of any other distillery that does, <laughs> does any kind of their own malting. It is very unique. I think that you could probably count the number of distilleries that do it themselves on one hand. Um, you know, and there's there's some advantages. You know, we have total control over it, which is nice. Yeah. Uh, being able to know how to make malt, to be able to create consistency, that's nice. Uh, but you'll also, you know, you run into a lot of other distillers who you'll be like, hey, have you ever decided to malt your own stuff? And I think it was actually Jared Hempstead at Valcones in Texas was like, why would I do that? The maltsters are experts in their area. I'm an expert in mine. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, it makes us unique. It's it's fun. It's a challenge. Um, we do about two maltings a month uh, to keep up with our production. But yeah, it's it's very unique, and to be able to have that control is is really really nice. Uncapped is brought to you by one of Frederick's original Maryland craft beer destinations, located off of Urbana Pike, featuring a warm, inviting atmosphere and knowledgeable staff serving up fresh, locally sourced culinary creations and unique craft beers on tap. Open seven days a week, our friends at Roast House Pub invite you to enjoy a casual lunch, happy hour specials, delicious dinners, and specialty desserts. Follow them on social media to keep up to date on their monthly beer dinners, mom's spaghetti dinner battles, and what beer is being featured for Buck Above Monday. 
Idiom Brewing Company proudly offers a delicious variety of beers to satisfy the most discerning tastes. Best known for their wide array of IPAs, delicious fruited sours, and robust porters and stouts, Idiom has a simple goal in mind, to bring people from all walks of life together, to enjoy themselves and each other. Whether you're a hophead looking for explosively juicy IPAs, are one of the adventurous few looking to try boozy, sour, or complex flavors, or just looking to enjoy classic styles and seasonal favorites, they'll have a little something for you. Idiom Brewing Company is located in downtown Frederick, just south of the intersection of East Street and East Patrick Street, with ample seating directly on Carroll Creek. Yeah, because I guess like you, if you're feeling frisky one day, you could go crazy on the amount of smoking you do, and it allows for way more experimentation than mm-hmm. if you're just buying a off checking a box on an order form. Exactly. So is that, um, is smoked, smoked, uh, single malts, a big part of what you guys do, or is that just one product that's offered? Uh, it's definitely what we're most known for. Um, you know, we call our, our Dorado, which is our core mesquite, not peated American single malt. Uh, that is what we are most known for, what we tend to get the most attention for. It isn't the only thing we do. Um, we have a wide range of unsmoked uh, American single malts that we do. Um, it's kind of interesting because um, I like to call what we do a love letter to the Sonoran Desert because, it, again, the, this idea of place, this idea of creating something that when you taste it, you go, yeah, that tastes like Whiskey Del Bach, and that tastes like where it came from. Um, Stephen's not a big fan, traditionally, of smoky scotches. Uh, he tends to not <laughs> like the Islas. Uh, but what makes mesquite interesting and, you know, I think – for us is one of the challenges, but also one of the things that makes it really beautiful and complex is mesquite smoke on malt does not taste like peat smoke. Um, peat tends to have this very kind of iodine, band-aid, um, kind of almost like a, a salinity to it, a kind of a saline quality. And mesquite, if you've never had mesquite, it's hard to describe what it is. Uh, people say, oh, mesquite smoke, what's that taste like? And my response is it tastes like mesquite. It is yeah. such a unique smoke. It's such a unique wood. Um, it's very popular in barbecue, particularly uh, Texas. Yeah, and I, Texas I've definitely barbecue. had mesquite, mesquite barbecue. Yeah, um, and so that's what it is. It, it, it lends this kind of barbecue note. It's it's soft. It's I call it kind of honeyed. It is this very kind of gentle smoke uh, versus. And I will also cop. I'm a huge fan of Islas. I love big, smoky, aggressive whiskeys. See, I think they are absolutely repulsive and disgusting. (laughs) So I'm really looking forward to trying the mesquite smoked because I think, I think that flavor profile I may actually like. It's like the Mm. peatiness is just what I can't, it tastes like just dirt to me. It is. And, you know, and smoke in general is divisive. I mean, it's, it's, it's a bold stance to take <laughs> to be like, yeah. oh, we're going to put smoke into our spirit because I don't know that I know many people who are like, oh, you know, I can take it or leave it. It is yeah. a, oh <laughs> yeah. my God, I love it. Or is a visceral that is disgusting. Yeah. Why would I? But we have had a fair number of people taste the mesquite and it kind of opens their eyes it's again it is just so distinctly different than what most people i think think of with smoked whiskeys yeah that's uh when you were like 
very clear in the description, not peated, <laughs> but mesquite. Like then I was like, oh, that, I'm intrigued by that. That actually sounds like it could be good instead of uh, what uh, peat does, peat moss <laughs> does to scotch. <laughs> <laughs> And it's it's a fine line. Um, it's interesting with mesquite smoke. If you do too much, it becomes really astringent. It becomes, you know, I'm building this up as this soft kind of velvety. If you're not careful, it it hits that astringent sucking on oversteeped black tea note. So, where um, where's the name? What what is the name Delbach? Uh, oh my gosh, I, is that I love this question. So. So we always make a point, you know, a lot of people do call us Del Bach. You know, we always be like, no, technically we are Whiskey Del Bach. And we'll occasionally have people be like, you're Del Bach Whiskey. No. So we're, Whiskey Del Bach is actually a trilingual name. Uh, so Tucson was born out of the San Xavier Del Bach uh, mission that's just south of town. And uh, Del is Spanish for of. And then Bach is the uh, local Tohono Autumn word, meaning the place where the river reappears in the sand. That's a so lot. A lot of information idea, from three letters. Right? And it's, <laughs> oh, it's, it's amazing. And it's a, it's a super interesting and it's a beautiful language. But yeah. so this, this mission was St. Xavier of the place where the whiskey or the the river reappears in the sand. And again, going back to this profound love letter of where we're from, this was also another Elaine idea of, you know, why not utilize this, this Del Bach nomenclature. And so our name, Whiskey Del Bach, fully translated is whiskey of the place where the river reappears in the sands. That's awesome. Isn't that amazing? It's it's such and a, a lot name. easier to just say whiskey Delbach than exactly. <laughs> but I, I love I love both aspects of that, like what it translates to, and like what you started out with that it it is comprised of three languages. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a trilingual name, and uh, yeah, it's it, and again, I think it's that idea of being thoughtful and being thoughtful in, in everything we do, not just with the brand, but you know, this thoughtfulness of the brand telling the story where we're from and then pushing that through to the product itself. So are they there? They, it sounds like they're very much like a local rooted business. Very much. Yes, we, we are. We're, um, you know, we're, we're very proud again, to be a Tucson company, proud to be an Arizona distillery. Uh, it's, it, we're in, I think 25, 26 States now, but 80% of our business is in our own backyard. Uh, and I think it's interesting because sometimes this discussion will happen, especially within craft spirits, which I think is a shame that it happens is you'll get this question of, you know, who are you trying to taste like? And then, you know, if you're, if you're good, your response is we're trying to taste like us. We're trying to taste like a unique yeah. brand and we will occasionally, and I feel like it's happened less and less since I've been here, but we would occasionally get this idea of, uh, <laughs> um, we would occasionally get this question of, boy, you guys really lean into the Arizona thing. You know, and and when and when you when you get out and when you start trying to sell nationwide, you know maybe maybe pull back on that a little bit. And you know our response is no. People like Scott, and it comes from Scotland. Yeah. Or, 
<laughs> right. Like, wh- why not be an Arizona yeah, single malt? And because yeah, Kentucky right. gets to to boast, Scotland gets to boast, Arizona, Tucson, Arizona can boast too. Yeah, it's a, that's a weird argument to me. <laughs> I think people just like being uh, contra- contradictory. So, <laughs> uh, I think you're one hundred percent right. <laughs> so, um, you whiskey Delbach doesn't uh, doesn't get into bourbon much, right? We do. Have not you done do any? Bourbon, no, not at all. No. Okay, no. Um, in fact, so for the first. 11 years of, of our business, we have been exclusively American single malt. Uh, and you know, that's been our bread and butter. That's what we're known for. It's what we're really, really good at. But we got that question a lot, you know, Oh, would you guys ever, or would you, would you ever consider a bourbon or would you ever consider a rye? And the challenge with American single malt, I guess, single malt in general is very labor intensive. Um, malted barley does not yield a lot. Um, it oh, do requires, you get a lot of loss from the from the mash? We, well, there's just not a lot or, of starch to convert. Oh, okay. Uh, that, you know, bourbon bourbon you use corn, which is full of sugar. Yeah. You know, you get these big yields. You know, we just it's it's harder to do that. Um, we do for us and for a lot of American single malt producers, we do the traditional Scottish model, which is off grain fermentation, which means that you grind your grain finer so you can louder it like you're making a traditional beer, which means you're not grinding it up fine enough to getting all the big yields you can with a hammer mill or when you're doing on grain. Uh, It's double copper pot distillation. So, you know, you're not being super efficient. You're getting these beautiful, bold, complex flavors coming off of the still in your new make, but it's not efficient. Um, And so because that's what we're known for, that's what we spend pretty much 100% of our energy on. Um, And one of the things that um, I'm excited for us to taste today, I think I included a bottle of Sentinel for you, didn't I? Our rye. Yes. So that is interesting. Well, like a true Marylander, I say like a true Marylander, which I was so thrilled to see that it became the official spirit of the state. Cause yeah. having, having come here from Maryland, uh, yeah, no, rye has a soft spot in my heart. we got this question a lot. You're going to do bourbon. You're going to do rye cards on the table. Steven, myself, some of the other people within the company, we're not big bourbon drinkers, but we love rye. And the conversation then became, we, we don't have the capacity to essentially bring on another spirit. Just everything is focused on single malt. And so. Well, cause we rye is like, really hard to work with also, right? Oh, it's a nightmare. As, it is a like, nightmare. Even worse. So than making a single malt, I would, I would venture to guess just cause of the nature of dealing with it's, all the things that can go wrong with a rye mash. Exactly. It's sticky. It's, it's a yeah. challenge to get the conversion that you need. Um, but this conversation started of, because single malt is so difficult to make, it's very expensive. Um, you know, our, our bottles range from $55 all the way up to 120, depending on what the product is. And our CEO here actually came from high West and, you know, high West kind of wrote the book on how do you source and how do you do it in a transparent way? And how do you do it in a way to create something entirely unique? And, you know, that's still kind of a dirty word within the industry is, you know, for for whatever reason, there's this idea if you're craft, you have to 100% make every single bit of it. 
And I think a lot of that was because there were a lot of bad players. There were a lot of people who, you know, would would source it and then claim this was Grandpappy's recipe that he got yeah. from down home. And we were like, if we can if we can find a rye that we like, you know, something that's interesting, and we can do something unique to it, then we'll do that, and we will be transparent about every step of the process. And with that, we actually pulled in samples from over a hundred different distilleries. <laughs> I, I, we tasted so many ryes and that'd be amazingly fun. Oh, it was, but there was also <laughs> a lot of terrible, there was some really terrible rye that we tasted. I um, mean, and we can kind of get into, into what we settled on what we do unique when we get to talking about the Sentinel, but uh, yeah, just the, the rye, this straight rye was the first time we've ever deviated from that American single malt model. Great beer starts with great ingredients. At Havoc Brewing Supply, they offer a wide selection of premium hops, fruit purees, malt, cleaning supplies, and more. Their family-owned business is dedicated to helping you create the perfect beer. Havoc offers flexible contracts, lightning-fast shipping, and unrivaled customer service. Join the Havoc Brewing Supply family and elevate your brewing game. Shop small, brew big, grow together. Visit HavocBrewingSupply.com today to learn more. McClintock Distilling is Maryland's first and only certified organic distillery, handcrafting gins, whiskeys, vodkas, and cordials from non-GMO organic ingredients in downtown Frederick. Named the best vodka distillery in the country by USA Today, best gin in the world at the International Spirits Competition, and double gold at the World Spirits Competition for bourbon, rye, and gin. Open now for tours, tastings, and classes. Come sample the most awarded distillery in Frederick today. When did that first come out? That came out last really... November. Okay. So that is, it is brand, brand new. <laughs> so the, it's in a different bottle than everything else. Is that a mm. function of just one of different, because it is very different than everything else that's offered? Or is there a reason that Rise except for in Maryland, they're just in shorter, fatter bottles, but so many like well-known ryes are in that shape of bottle. Mm -hmm. So is, it's like, is there any, okay. It's twofold. So we've, we've referred to the Sentinel as a cousin. Um, you know, it's, it's part of the whiskey Delbach family, but because we do not make it, we, you know, we, it is not own make. We do not do it from scratch to start to age. We just finish blend and bottle to make it unique we wanted to create that differentiation. And when someone sees it, they know this isn't one of our single malts. The other part of that was, you'll also notice the label's green. Most major ryes out on the market have green, have green somewhere within that label. And so that was also a conscientious decision to, to fall within that kind of, the accepted visual standards at least of okay. rye. So it's kind of like, Hey, this is something different from us, but also to hearken to what a lot of the leading rye brands, like their their bottles are shaped like. So it exactly. kind of yells, this is a rye and something a little bit different about this than what we normally put out. Exactly. And I think I, I, I mean, I typically don't care about anything. Uh, so <laughs> sourcing doesn't bother me when it's done transparently. Like right. I don't like places that try to act like they're making everything, but mm -hmm. they're everything they do is sourced. 
Um, and I feel like there's so there's so much sourcing now that I think in general people's opinions are softening to that. And if I mean if you're doing something to make it your own, also then I, I don't I don't understand what the problem is. But exactly. there are like in any um, any industry where there are passionate consumers and fans, there are definitely the purists and uh, people that have strong opinions on the the purity of how things are done. Exactly. Exactly. And and again, and you, someone actually asked me a while back. Like, you know, you've been distilling a while now. What's what's the, the, your biggest opinion change you've ever had? And sourcing's the one. Because uh, I will admit, when I started in the industry, I was one of those. No, you're not craft unless you are taking it from the grain all the way to the glass. And and I think a lot of it was that. it was There were so many bad actors. There was so much uh, obfuscation going on of like, no, you can't. Like, yeah, that's just 100% we did it, and they didn't. And yeah. then you started having places like Barrel um, and High West and taking this idea of sourcing, and which, you know, is used, which is done in winemaking and being like, this is where we're bringing it from. But then, yeah, we're also doing something else to it to make it unique. And I, I think that there are a lot of bad sources, too that yes some of the like those bad actors are just looking to they don't care necessarily as much about the product they just decided that hey there's money in alcohol and i'm going to try to ring out as much as i possibly can by source really cheap juice that is awful and mm-hmm. and say they made it and try to sell it <laughs> Right, exactly. So what um what what do you guys do to put your stamp on Sentinel? Uh so you know it's it's kind of again that direct line from where single malts were born, you know, this idea of and I, I feel like a broken record sometimes, this sense of place, <laughs> this sense of terroir, the sense of this is a whiskey that is of southern Arizona and so the immediate thought going back to our Dorado is mesquite should be involved somehow. You know, that's, that's probably going to be, be the easiest. And, but that goes back to mesquite can be difficult to work with. And so the, the immediate thought that you have, of course, is, well, because we do produce 100% of our single malts ourselves, we have all these lovely finishing, potential finishing barrels that we can we can take this source rye and we can we can finish it in our mesquite smoked barrels. And when I say mesquite smoked, I also need to put the caveat: the barrel itself is not smoked. We smoke the malt, but as it ages, you know that spirit pushes in. That devil cut becomes yeah. part and parcel of the barrel. And so after you know we had tasted through all of these, just again ranging from absolutely beautiful but unaffordable ryes <laughs> to just you know the dreck of the dreck. We settled on our source, which is where 90% of the source comes from, which is MGP. Uh, we are an, it's an Indiana rye, but there's a reason people go for it. It's a well-made rye. They know what they're yeah, doing. There's... But we also didn't want to take it and just slap our label on it and be like, yeah, we just took MBG, NG, bleh, MGP juice and and it's it's ours now. So, so we took a blend of two and three-year-old MGP ryes 
and we blended them together and then we laid them down in our, what we call our MS or mesquite smoked barrels. And we let them sit for a summer. And again, focusing on very hot, lots of temperature fluctuations, we're getting a lot of interaction. And we started censoring the barrels and we realized, yeah, it was, it was okay. You know, there was a little bit of mesquite on there, but it wasn't different enough. It still really tasted like MGP rye. And so what I always say is I have never had a good idea in my life. I've just stolen other people's <laughs> good ideas. Uh, there is the traditional charcoal, charcoal mellowing um, done in a lot of Tennessee bourbons, which is they take sugar maple charcoal and then run their whiskey over that. And the thought occurred that we're producing a bunch of mesquite charcoal during our malting process. What if we take this, you know, centuries old tradition, but instead of doing the sugar maple, we run it across mesquite charcoal that we're producing and see what it does. And it just elevated it. It just, it was like night and day. And, you know, we, we've had people go, oh, well, surely it's, it's the barrel finish. And it's a combination of both because it was just that little extra step of running it across that mesquite charcoal, added that stronger hint of mesquite and made something unique that you really taste it. And you go, yeah, this isn't like any other ride that's on the market right now. See, like I think that's awesome because it, you uh, you guys have this thing that's you, that is very unique to you the the mes the mesquited uh, smoking and like the double layer of using that with a source product. I mean, I would I'd, I'd say that's solidly your own. <laughs> and and yeah, and we were and we were proud of it. And you know, reflecting on the the transparency as well, that goes through to the label. Um, you know, Sentinel is the dominant branding on it. Um, we do have our name on the front label that it's finished in former uh Delbach casks. But then on the back, I always tell people like we we really want to underline how transparent we're being. On the back, we say that it is distilled and aged in Indiana, but then finished, blended, and bottled by us here in Tucson. Where um, where did the name of it come from? What's the tie between the owl and the name? So uh, there is a uh, it, it, we call it a mountain, sometimes called Sentinel Peak. It is a smaller mountain that is on the edge of Tucson, and it was called Sentinel because it was originally used as a lookout again for the indig indigenous uh, Autumn people. And you can see Sentinel Peak from our distillery, and so again that okay. We're, we're thinking of where we're from, you know, Sentinel Peak and Sentinels, you have this very close tie-in with where we're from. Then also the idea of us being Sentinels or Guardians of the Desert, uh, which is where the owl comes in as well, is uh, it's a horned owl, which is uh, prevalent here in Southern Arizona. And, you know, owls are associated, of course, with wisdom, with this connection to nature. And so it, it all kind of came together of, you know, how do we, how do we, again, focus on where we're from, but also something that resonates with people. And uh, we, we haven't been able to establish it yet. Um, fingers crossed, heading into this next year, we will be able to. Uh, the goal is also that a small percentage of the proceeds from Sentinel will go to conservation efforts within oh, cool. uh, the Sonoran Desert as well. 
it hasn't happened yet. We're trying, we're trying to get it through. We're trying to get it through our CFO and our CEO and all that, but that's, that's the goal. (laughs) It's very striking packaging. I like it. Um, thank you. Yeah, we we put a lot of thought to it. Amanda, uh, Stephen's daughter and our co-founder, she is what we who we call our, the guardian of our brand, and so she is the one who oversees like our packaging and our labels and things like that. And uh, the owl that's on the label is actually hand drawn by a local tattoo artist. So it is oh, it's cool. not clip art. It is a yeah, it is a wholly <laughs> unique owl for our product. <laughs> you didn't didn't launch Word and uh, search. <laughs> <laughs> Did you go to yeah Adobe stock and be like, okay, let's, let's see what we've got. Um, so it also, it, it, it looks like the, the big current trend in bourbons of taking a, however many year bourbon and then finishing it for a few months in some other type of barrel that you, you guys do that pretty extensively with your single malts. We do. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a great segue. So, uh, we had kind of talked earlier about, you know, we're mostly known for our mesquited single malts, but what we call our classic is, was the very first one we ever made. And that's our unsmoked 100% malted barley, uh, single malt. We've been lucky enough. We, you know, as as we come across unique barrels, as we have connections with other people within the industry, we've been able to nab up uh, some pretty interesting, interesting finishing barrels. And you know, we're big believers in the idea that a finishing barrel is exactly that. It's used to finish something. Uh, you don't. It's a fine balance. If you leave something in a barrel too long, yeah. you don't taste that original spirit. It just becomes something either wholly different or completely out of whack. Um, and so born out of that is what we call our global cask collection, uh, which over the years we've had what we call our distillers cuts, which are kind of unique one-offs ways we've been able to flex our blending and finishing muscle. And we had two distillers cuts that were really, really popular. One of them was our classic finished in a Pedro Jimenez Sherry Bota. And the other was our classic finished in Calvados, which is a French apple and pear brandy. Okay. And I was going to ask what that, because I'd never heard of Calvados before. Yes. Yes. Uh, which, again, talking about, I have a deep, deep love for apple brandies. Uh, you know, Applejack, another Maryland spirit, is very near and dear to my heart. And uh, Calvados is this very, very bright, very kind of a uh, green apple note to it. And our classic is a little heavier. Um, it's it's uh, stone fruit and malted chocolate. And then you add this little bit in with the Calvados and it suddenly brightens up and it becomes this kind of, you know, recognizable but different product. And then, so that then extrapolated, one, can we get our hands on these barrels consistently? Uh, Pedro Jimenez Sherry is a little bit easier. Calvados is a little more difficult, but we've got a good line on them. And so the Pedro Jimenez finish became what we call our Frontera, which is our uh, PX finish that comes out every spring. And then the Calvados finish became our Normandy, which comes out every summer. And that that release is actually coming up. And uh, it just, again, that lightness that's brought on from that from that apple brandy just really balances out for for a summer sip. Sounds amazing. I, I love. Um, is that a fairly current trend of the finishing barrels, or is it just that it seems to be picking up 
a little bit more steam? I think you're seeing more of it. Um, one of the challenges that that you had was TTB, the regulatory agency for distilleries. Uh, what they'll allow We're, you to put on a label. and Exactly. And for a while, you couldn't say something was finished. Um, and they also kind of changed, you know, how, how you can, how your age statement works and things like that. And so I think with the increased ease of access to these very unique, interesting spirit and wine and beer barrels, uh, that increase in people wanting to forge their own path and create new things as craft distillers. But, you know, that's been going on in, in scotch production for a long time. I mean, double oak scotches, you know, originally in say like ex bourbon or ex sherry and then finished in a different uh, spirit or wine barrel. That's been going on for a long time. And I think, you know, I think it's good when done well, I would argue we do it well, <laughs> but, but sometimes, yeah, you can, you can get that, that over, that over finished quality in a product. Yeah. I just, I, I think it just adds that extra layer of experimentation and innovation that craft distillers are able to do. So I, I love the trend. I actually just did, I did a barrel pick with McClintock and we're finishing it in a port mm -hmm. barrel. Oh, and uh, was it their bourbon or their rye? Their bourbon. Oh yeah. So, and that, that bourbon's going to be really well complemented. It was, barrel. there were, and it, it was so hard because the three, we tried like five different barrels that day and they were so, <laughs> so good. There were, my favorite one isn't the one we chose because it just, it didn't seem like it would, it, it, it didn't taste like it would go as well with the port barrel finishing. But like I wanted them to just fill up bottles from that barrel <laughs> for me. It was so good. And that's, but you hit the nail on the head. That's key too, is, you know, sometimes you will have something that you love, but you're like, this has to stand on its own. And yeah. you have to have that, that by itself, maybe this isn't the most complex or interesting, but having that eye and that thoughtfulness to be like, but if we add this to it, that yeah, can it really was, add that The complexity. one that was so good, like it, it tasted like it had just had caramel poured into the barrel <laughs> and it was so good, but it was, it was sweeter so we were worried like if you if you then finish that in a port barrel that's just going to become too too sweet and it, it might become overpowering so we went with i mean it was still amazing by itself but the barrel we mm. went with was a little less sweet and not quite as uh quite as strong on the caramel notes mm -hmm. but i i love that how um there are so many people doing that because uh, it just, like I said, I just, I love that experimentation. So you said Dorado, that's your flagship, the mosquito uh, yes, one. And that's, then the, that's what we're most well known for. Although, you know, as Stephen will always say, so our, our classic in 2021 was actually named one of wine enthusiasts, top 100 spirits in the world. Oh. And, yeah, and and we're obviously incredibly proud of everything yeah. we put into a bottle. But Stephen's always like, it's kind of nice that the little sister got some attention for once because uh -huh. almost everyone's like, oh my god, talk about the Dorado. <laughs> um, so I unfortunately um, ended up having to record this in the office studio, and I had planned on going home to record in my home studio, and I 
don't have the spirits with me. But oh. could you just do like a tasting notes kind of of oh, each yeah, one I'd to, be, to walk through of what they are? Because I think they're I think they're unique enough that people who haven't tried them should hear what they're like. And you will do a much better job of describing them than my novice palate and vocabulary can handle. <laughs> I will, I will always tell people, you know, what, number one, there's no wrong tasting notes. You know, it is whatever the associations you build is, is that's, that's 100% correct. Cause that's what it means to you. I will also I, I have some distillers that I have a massive, I mean, I have a lot of distillers that I have a massive amount of respect for, um, but Rob Masters at the Family Jones in Colorado had one of the best interviews I've ever seen. Uh, he was talking about a four-year-old rye they were getting ready to release. And the, the guy doing the interview asked Rob, he's like, well, do you have any tasting notes? He goes, I don't know. It's delicious. <laughs> Is it delicious? Kind of, yeah. I put it in a bottle. Is it not delicious? I don't put it in a bottle. <laughs> I, um, I often say that my, uh, I I'm limited to just basically grunting whether I like it or not. <laughs> I mean, <it> good, bad. <laughs> and, and that's, you know, it's when you do it long enough, I think you also start to overthink, you know, you like, I will sit you try to look for and, added adjectives and like or false, make it more flat. You know, like, yeah. Make we'll the description sit, you know, more flowery than it needs to be. <laughs> Be poetic. Yeah. But you know, like the, we're, we're small enough when we do our batches, the entire production team, we all sensory together and we will eventually do tasting notes. But when we're doing sensory, it is quite literally. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Would nope. I buy this? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, exactly. Would, would I pay money for this? Like that's the, uh, but yeah, no, I, I'd love to, um, and I'm really excited for you to be able to get back to your home office and try these. Yeah. And I'm eager to hear what you think because uh, obviously we're very proud of them. But uh, we'll we'll start with our classic. Um, the the classic is again the 100% unsmoked uh, single malt. One of the ways that kind of makes us unique is we are very Scottish tradition up to a point. You know, we're 100% malted barley. We do off-grain fermentation. We do double copper pot distillation. But where we break with that tradition is we are actually aging in new American white oak that has a medium plus toast, a number three char. We are also almost exclusively doing our first aging in quarter casks in 15 gallons. So we are doing small format. There will be people who will tell you that's the wrong way to do it. Small format <laughs> creates unbalanced, terrible whiskeys. Not if you know what you're doing. If you know what you're doing, you can create really great, complex. People will always be floored. Our average of our core, which is our classic in Dorado, our average age is a year. 12 months oh, wow. is our... Uh, we actually just had a, um, a visitor into the distillery two weeks ago. He's a very well-known bartender and mixologist out of Las Vegas. And we sat down to do the tasting. And we had given the tour. We had told him these are small format barrels about 12 months old. And he noses the classic and he goes, 12 months? This was, <laughs> this was 12 months? And like, yeah, it's again, we, we make narrower cuts in our hearts because we don't have time for those kind of what is a fault in a new make to oxidize, yeah. to esterify. So we make very narrow cuts. We are thoughtful with what goes into the barrel and we start sensory at 10 months. And the longest we let it ride is 15. 
does because otherwise um, it overextracts. So does does the extreme temperature and temperature fluctuations aid in the ability to age that short of a time period because there is so much being pulled in and out of the wood? Exactly. Um, okay. Again, it's we're able to take advantage of because what a lot of people probably see as like a challenge or a, a fault within you know the aging environment we have you know, lean into it. And that's what we, we've done. That's what Steven and the previous head distillers have done. That's what we continue to do. And so, yeah, when you have these 30, 40 degree shifts, you are pushing and pulling every single day. And if you don't know what you're doing, you let it ride too long. People will be like, oh, you age faster. That's not technically true. We extract faster. You know, we have more surface area of the spirit with more surface area of the wood. And so it's, it has to be a conscientious decision of here's how you do that. And, you know, we will occasionally let a barrel sit for a while and see what happens. And then you're like, no, that's terrible. It's over oaked. It's, you know, all you can taste is the astringency and the tannins in the wood, uh, which is a very long way to kind of loop back to our classic. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, I will also always point out, you know, we have a cabinet full of double golds and 90 plus ratings from whiskey advocate and wine enthusiast that I think says, Again, if you're, you're doing something you right, good. exactly, <laughs> and people buy it, which is also the ultimate compliment. Yeah. Like, yeah. scores are I mean, great, really are that, great. <laughs> yeah, that I mean, that's definitely the ultimate test. <laughs> if no one's buying it and you're still getting high ratings, who cares? <laughs> it, it, exactly, exactly. Um, but with our classic, as I had said, it's it's our unsmoked. Uh, it is aged about twelve months um, on the nose. It is. It's very caramely. Um, especially as it sits and breathes, you'll get some butterscotch that will come across from it. Uh, we will have people taste it and they're like, this doesn't taste like scotch. I'm like, yeah, it's not scotch. It's American single malt. Um, because we go into those new barrels, we do kind of tread that line of the more brash American styles of whiskey. So we have had some people who are like big bourbon drinkers who like, yeah, I've had single malts. I don't like them. They will kind of find a good in with the classic because it has a lot of those notes that are going to be a lot more familiar for people who drink bourbon or drink rye. So a lot of those vanillas, you're going to get that heavy butterscotch. I'm going to take a quick sip. You're saying all the flavors I love. <laughs> it's yeah, it's, it's, it's not as uh, soft, not the right word. It's, it's not as delicate as I think what a lot of people think of when they think okay. of single malts, it is a little bit more in your face. Um, one of the things is that you get this really, really nice stone fruit note. So, you know, uh, plums and apricots, things like that, that kind of blossom across the mid palate. But then the longest lingering are some of those, you know, more bitey tannins that you get from that barrel. And so uh, we just really, really like one, it can stand on its own neat. Uh, it's really good over ice, but it also stands up really well in a cocktail too. Um, which I think can sometimes be a challenge with single malts. Um, single malts can either be maybe a little to one note that they get lost in a cocktail or they're so complex and so bold that they just trample over everything else they're mixed with. I love I how much you're uh, unsmoked too. <laughs> okay. Oh, cause yeah. Once you get that smoke flavor into your, uh, onto your palate, it's hard to, uh, taste around it i guess exactly 
Um, I always love uh, listening to you describe things because you, like your journalism background just flows out as you talk about. Yeah, I just can't get away from words. <laughs> it's <laughs> more awesome. And more in, I thank you. I, I do appreciate that. And it's it, it's to me one of the things that you know, it goes back to why I even got into distilling in the first place. Because, you know, I came from journalism to public relations and marketing to running a bar program, getting obsessed with the, you know, the, the small minutia of bar programs. Oh, let's make our own bitters. Let's make our own syrups. And then, you know, what's the, what's the ultimate way to have control over a cocktail is make the spirits that you're mixing with. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I always also say like, and I'll go back to, there is no wrong, there is no wrong way. Um, we, we actually had some visitors in that, uh, the, their father, uh, or their uncle maybe, owns a cigar shop down in Mexico and they routinely do whiskey pairings. And he's walking through this group talking about, okay, you know, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? You know, it's, it's a game of associations. And this woman smells this bourbon and she says, it smells like sweaty cowboy. (laughs) (laughs) And everyone kind of pauses and they're like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. What? It it smells like sweaty, sweaty cowboy. And she's like, yeah. So like, She's like, I smell this and I think of like, the, he's, he's just ridden in and he comes down and he's sweaty and, you know, like his, his chaps are kind of damp and, you know, he's dusting himself off and they finally feel, realize the association she was making was leather. Like, oh, okay. What she smelled was leather, which yeah. is a very common bourbon tasting and note, but that's where her mind went. She had this association of a cowboy wearing his leather chaps and that's. She's like, and she kept saying, like, it's not in a bad way. I promise it's not in a bad way, but <laughs> yeah. this smells like sweaty cowboy. <laughs> in the best way possible. It smells. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So um, is, uh, so would you do Dorado next in the tasting or would you save that further down because of the smokiness? So I would do the Dorado next just because okay. it's kind of gives you a good idea of, of um, what our day to what our day to day, what our core skews are, what, you know, these are kind of where we hang our hat. So is that the same? Um, is that basically just classic uh-huh. with the malt being smoked or is, is it a whole different recipe? So it is, um, it is a different mash bill. It is a blend of our unsmoked malt and our smoked malt. It's actually about 60% unsmoked, 40% smoked. So people are really surprised when they hear there's only about 40% of the smoked malt in there. Again, smoke comes through. Smoke's punchy. Yeah. Um, one of the cool things for it to be an American single malt, you know, we have four ingredients. We have water, yeast, malted barley, the barrel. Those are the four things that we can use to make an American single malt. But you have so many variations within those four. And so, so it's a completely separate mash bill, still 100% malted barley. We then do the same double copper pot distillation that gets aged the same amount of time as classic. But over the years, as we've gotten feedback, we've tweaked the recipe a little bit. Again, smoke's divisive. Uh, Some of those early bottles of Dorado are smoke bombs. They're very aggressive. They're very punchy. So what we do now is after the initial... <clears throat> was that from oversmoking the malt or was it a higher percentage of the smoked malted barley? 
it was just having so much of that smoke in that okay. initial aged product um, because the mash bill has been tweaked too. pull back on that smoke, make it a little bit more balanced. But what we've also started doing with the Dorado is there's a little bit of the classic blended into that mesquite smoked product to okay. then again, soften that, get some of those same uh, stone fruit notes. Um, we had, we didn't talk about it, but, the third release in our global cast collection is what we call our Ode to Isla. And that is a, that is a smoke bomb. That is kind of, yeah, I saw that and I just intentionally ignored it. (laughs) (laughs) I saw that on the list. I'm like, that's not, that's not worth talking about. (laughs) It's one of my favorite things that we make. It's, I always, I always say like the, the goal is to get right up to the edge of, wow, this is way too much smoke and then don't fall over. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> back, back off a step. Um, so yeah, so that's but that's kind of a throwback to the original Dorado recipe. Uh, it used to be called our winter release, um, but we have people who look forward to it. Like that is their. I will still get re- on the regular. Man, I really wish you guys that Dorado was smokier, but <laughs> Dorado's a little more accessible, uh, I think, for the general public. And then yeah, then we can we can send a love letter to our smokeheads out there. Yeah. <laughs> So one of the things you'll notice, um, again, if you're going from classic to Dorado in your tasting, is the smoke is going to be there, but it's not going to be omnipresent. Um, kind of like we talked about earlier, a lot of people kind of anticipate that big, you know, iodine band-aid note. Um, this smells like a campfire. It's very soft. It's just kind of around the edges. Um, again, it's it's so difficult to to describe mesquite if you've never tasted it. <laughs> it, it is, it's there and it's, and it's noticeable. Um, mesquite I don't is also have used any of the good words. Uh, so I definitely cannot <laughs> describe what mesquite um, tastes like. Uh, mesquite's used a lot in fire for firewood here. Um, if you, if you come down to Tucson in the winter, people will have their fireplaces going. They'll have their, their outdoor fire pits and mesquite's everywhere. It's, it smells like a night in in uh in baja arizona but you still get some of those similar notes you're gonna you're gonna get some of that chocolate um you're gonna get a little bit of that butterscotch you're also going to see some cinnamon uh the the joke we make and i don't know if we can include this because it'll be a brand name and probably disparaging but the joke we make every time (laughs) we 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 knows from the barrel is hey we made fireball smell that smells like cinnamon (laughs) it's not i promise it's not fireball it's so much better (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but the cinnamon red hots are, are a very, very pronounced note in the Dorado as well. Mm. And then the thing that I really like about our Dorado and I like about a lot of our smoked products is the smoke blooms. It is, you, you get kind of this bite at first that you kind of go, Oh, is that, is that too much ethanol? Is that too much? Is it a little unbalanced? But then, that spreads across the palate and then it lingers um, again. So we always say it's very similar. Um, it has some tobacco notes, uh, specifically pipe tobacco. Uh, I always say because I'm a hipster and I like to smoke <laughs> a tobacco pipe, uh, Cavendish is a pretty common uh, pipe tobacco and it's very similar to that. It is this kind of warming, soft, not overly acrid note. The other thing that's nice about the Dorado is that finish just lasts and lasts and lasts. And, and so 
I'm again, I'm proud of what we're doing. I'm proud of the classic, but Dorado is the day-to-day drink that I tend to grab first. I'm going to take another sip of this. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm guessing in our flight, Normandy would be the next, you are the next one that you would go to. Yes. So if we were doing this, this is just classic finished in a barrel. Correct. Okay. Um, if we were doing this tasting, I would say, okay, now's the time. Let's stand up. Let's stretch a little bit, you know, get some water, uh, grab some oyster crackers, grab some almonds, something, because you're going to want to reset your palate. Uh, typically, I do recommend, again, the smoke to the last. Uh, but this is special. And so, yeah. you know, you kind of want to, it's kind you kind of want to save dessert for last. Um, but it's not last, last, because we'll eventually talk about Sentinel. But, but yeah, so the Normandy, like I say, begins its life as our classic. So same process, aged between 10 to 15 months in our quarter casks. And then we will blend a bunch together and then we'll go into these Calvados casks. We'll have people ask, how long does it finish? The answer is always until it's done. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> we actually have, uh, one of the things that I'm really proud of our barrel program, we actually have a range of Calvados casks ranging from, we've used them four times all the way down to we just brought some fresh uh over from france and just got laid down and you want you want that layering you know you you want to have this slight hint um brandy finished whiskeys can be also be divisive and can be difficult to pull off well um i think we i think we kind of nailed this again also having that soft spot for apple brandy um so let's go into the normandy on the Normandy, I I immediately get like uh, caramel apples. Uh, you know, it's 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 odd. Like I mean, this treads. We, this releases in the summer. This treads into autumn because uh, you've got caramel dip apples. You've got sour cherry. Um, that's one thing that we've kind of noticed. Those heavier, sweeter notes from our core single malts. When you add these more, these brighter, more. Um, uh, fruit forward notes kind of creates almost like a, like a preserved note. Okay. Um, and I, I know, you know, uh, like the modern bar cart, Eric Koslick, uh, yeah, yeah. they just did our, they just did our Frontera a review of our Frontera. And that was a note that he had. He's like, Oh my God, it's like, it's like preserves. <laughs> it's, <laughs> and, and you kind of get this on, on the nose as well. Hmm. Then with that, again, especially if you go and you go side by side from the classic to the Normandy, it's much brighter. Um, You get that, again, you get that apple influence. Uh, For me, it's kind of like someone took the classic and maybe just like in Photoshop knocked the contrast up a little bit more. Just it's creating these this kind of dichotomy between that heavier sweet and that, that brighter fruit note. Um, single, single grain whiskeys can be challenging. They can become one note. Um, it's one of the struggles with single malt is, you know, it, you don't have these conflicting notes of the grains. That's kind of where uh, finishing can come in. It can add some of that depth and some, some layers to that, to that drink. And, you know, cards on the table, again, I'm proud of everything we do. I, 
I think this is my favorite thing that we make <laughs> is the Normandy. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to it. This is the second year we've released it. And it just, I get really, really excited for it. And I talk a lot about mouthfeel, a lot about finish. It has this bright mouthfeel, but then it finishes almost like with Dolce de Leche, you know, just this creamy, just long lasting finish. Once again, you're speaking all the flavors I love. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so this one, like I said, this is a special release. Um, This does come out um, typically between August and September. Uh, I think this year we're probably treading a little closer to September for the release. Uh, We've actually had some issues because it has been so hot in Arizona uh, with some of the transport. Ethanol is very volatile as it heats up. There have been some issues with some corks popping. Uh, thankfully, not widespread, but kind of the thought has been, you know, let's let's keep an eye on these 110, 112 degree temperatures. Yeah. And uh, it's bottled, it's ready. Uh, we're excited for it, but we also want to make sure that when it gets to gets to the person, that it is exactly how we intend it to get to the person. And this will be available in the Maryland market. Awesome. <laughs> So now we have Sentinel. Yes. I really love that packaging. The photo on the website with the um, Whiskey Delback rocks glass sitting there on the mm -hmm. barrel with the bottle is beautiful. That is a, and that is a shout out to our photographer, uh, Julius. Mm -hmm. He, does amazing work. Um, pretty much all of the like promotional photography you see, that's his work and artistry. I mean, it just, you know, I can take, I can snap a picture with my phone and it's going to look like a bottle (laughs) sitting on a wooden table, but he really elevates it. Um, so yeah, so Sentinel, the, the cousin of the single malts that we've been talking about this, this time. And again, we're, we're up front, you know, this, this is a sourced blend of two and three year. Uh, we actually specifically chose younger uh, for two reasons. Again, single malt's expensive to make, so that means the bottles are expensive. We also kind of lacked within our portfolio a more affordable whiskey, and so you know we wanted to keep it affordable without it being again just like something you want to dump into the trash. Yeah. And rye. Again, and you know this as a rye drinker, you know, rye, especially 95% rye, what we call Indiana or Midwestern rye, is very punchy. It's a lot of black pepper. It's um, a lot of green. It's a lot of green herbal. When it's younger, it's even more pronounced. And when you have young rye, you have this very distinct kind of dill note to it. Like that's the thing that like when I when I smell really young rye, I get a lot of dill on it. And we wanted this to be able to stand up into cocktails. You know, the, the idea was, could this be something you can drink? Yeah. But you know, this is also what we want you to grab for your Sazerac. Uh, my wife and I have been drinking a lot of Sentinel highballs this summer. And I mean like the Japanese style highball where it is just soda water, maybe a small dash of bitters and a lemon twist. Like you're, you're not adding sweetener. You're just creating this very light, uh, kind of effervescent cocktail. Uh, But yeah, so we start with this sourced and we then take it, we actually blend the two and the three year together before we finish it. Kind of again with an eye on hitting this bolder, more pronounced rye note. It goes into our uh, barrels that are used to make our Dorado. Uh, Sits for anywhere from one to three months. 
Again, focusing on the idea of finishing. We want to keep that core base there. We don't want to influence too much. Also, smoke is divisive. We want this to be accessible. So we will start censoring those barrels when we feel that we've got the right amount of finish on it. We'll pull those out, blend everything back together. And then that's when it goes through the mesquite charcoal process. Um, so let's, let's take, a little, take a little sniff here. I, I, I love the story of that rye. Like I think it's just the absolute perfect way to um, to put your own stamp on a sourced spirit. Thank you. Yeah, we thoughtfulness is, is a word I say a lot, and you know it's it's something that that Stephen and Amanda and and those within Whiskey Dal Bach, the production team, you know, we're all try to be very aware of that. You know, we're not just, we're not doing something. Yeah, we're a business. We, we have to yeah. make money. <laughs> that's, that's kind of the goal, but we also don't want to just do something for the sake of doing it. And, and so, yeah, so it is one thing that a lot of people will also come to when they first encounter Sentinel is they'll be like, I mean, this doesn't smell like your Dorado. You know, there's, it is, it is the lightest hint of mesquite that's added to the nose that dill that you get a lot, and again, those younger rise is pulled back a little bit. It's still very there. It's still very, very bright. It's still very vegetal. Uh, but some of that kind of black pepper harshness that you get on the nose has dissipated. Which is interesting that I say that because the reception has been amazing. We have had some people who are huge rye fans go, I want more heat. <laughs> like I really <laughs> want that bold, punchy rye note. Um, but yeah, then sipping it, <clears throat> sipping it is, it's again, I, I'm going to use the word bright again, but it, it's very bright, especially after kind of those heavier notes of the single malts. It has a very subdued heat. Some of that black pepper has now been switched out to kind of almost like a honey note. And then the one thing that typically I like really long lingering finishes, the finish on this is actually surprisingly short. Um, it is again, kind of this big blast of, of dill and mint, this slight hint of mesquite. And I would even argue it's not even mesquite smoke. Uh, cause we will also have people come to it and be like, Oh, I thought there was going to be a smoke note to it. There's the mesquite there but it's not mesquite smoke. It is if you were kind of like eating something that had maybe been roasted with or cooked with mesquite. And yeah, it's just be, being a huge rye fan, being a huge Maryland rye fan, which is not as, you know, black pepper, hot yeah. heat. This makes me happy because this, this is certainly not a Maryland rye by any stretch of the imagination, especially it not being from Maryland, yeah. but <laughs> it is a little more of that kind of softer floral note that I think Maryland rye is what has always made me really like Maryland rye. And again, I'm so excited for you to try these and I'm so sorry we can't do this tasting together. <laughs> yeah, I'm I mean, they all sound absolutely amazing. I can't wait to try them. Um, so what is the best way for people to stay up to date with what's going on at Whiskey Delbach? 
Um, so obviously we're across social media, um, Instagram at whiskey Del Bach, all one word. Uh, we're on Facebook. Our website gets updated relatively regularly. Uh, we're actually in the process of doing a redesign on it now. So ideally it will be easier for us to update it on the regular there. Um, and, you know, we, we try to work really closely with those within the, the writing industry. You know, we have great relationships with, with, with you guys. Uh, we have great relationships with uh, Whiskey Advocate and other places. So as, as releases come out, we, you know, we try to get it across our own channels, but also, you know, uh, partner with those within the industry. And you have a sign up for their mailing list too. I find that's yes. the best way possible if you if you care about a company to stay stay up to date with what they're doing is to sign up for their mailing list. You're better at this than I am. Yes, we do. <laughs> it's, it's it's the pop up. It's the it's the prompt when you go to whiskeydelbach.com. Uh, and it's you also can sign up you, for a newsletter. If you happen to go away from that, it's at the bottom of the page. But I mean, that's the one thing that you have full control over. Social media, mm-hmm. you never know what's going to happen. You don't have any control over who sees that or what your access to it or anything. But if you really want to find out what what's going on with anyone you follow, if they have a mailing list, you always should sign up for that. Yes, definitely. We have we have new releases that come out. Those announcements as we get new merchandise, as we open up new states, uh, those always come across in our newsletters. Do you want to answer a couple intentionally stupid questions? I would love to, so long as you don't mind intentionally stupid answers. <laughs> <laughs> Who would win in a battle between a ninja and a pirate? <sighs> I'm going to say the pirate because I'm assuming they can swim. We don't know that the ninja can. Uh, that is the accurate answer. So congratulations. You're one for one. <laughs> does pineapple belong on pizza? It does. And I will fight that not. to the death. That is that is where you're <laughs> – you can take that in your um, idly or whatever that abomination of scotch is. And <laughs> <laughs> what is the strangest or stupidest purchase you've ever made? <laughs> I used to own swords. <laughs> I used to be a sword guy. Uh, so I would say probably that, that, that collection of terrible, this, that collection of terrible swords and knives that I had from high school into my sophomore year of college when I met my wife and the horrified look on her face, which is like, I'm dating a sword guy. <laughs> oh, that's, that's a good answer. It's both stupid <laughs> and strange. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I was, I, well, I'm still, I'm still an irre- irrepressible nerd, but I don't have the swords anymore. <laughs> you don't have the swords to prove it. <laughs> Exa- exactly. <laughs> Is Nickelback a good band? I, uh, not my taste, no. What is the but worst? But I will tell you, I did like. I did like. Look at this photograph. <laughs> I will argue this, and I think this is a Dave Grohl quote: "There is no such thing as a guilty pleasure. You like what you like." And I yeah, like that. I don't have a strong opinion <laughs> either way. I mean, I I enjoy Nickelback jokes and memes. Um, oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> what is the strangest thing that you've ever eaten? 
Oh, wow. That is a really good question. What is the strangest thing I have ever eaten? Uh, stinky like tofu. Had stinky I had stinky tofu. I had stinky tofu in China when my brother was that? living there. Uh, it is kind of exactly what it sounds like. Uh, it, it smells is, <laughs> it's, it's fermented tofu. Okay. Um, it, um, it was delicious. Um, I've never had durian, but you know, you hear these horror, these horror stories about durian smelling yeah, like, like how you know, feet yeah. and, um, I feel like I smelled like the stinky tofu for days, but, <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was good. It was, it was delicious. It was at the strong recommendation of my brother. <laughs> What's the dumbest injury you've ever had? <laughs> I, I broke the fifth metacarpal on my right hand. Um, on my wife and I's first wedding anniversary, I, I am not going to elaborate how I broke it, but it is suffice it to say it's the dumbest injury I've ever gotten. Um, most injuries I can explain away. That one was a, <laughs> Hey, we're always going to remember our first wedding anniversary because Mark had to go to the hospital. <laughs> what is the most used emoji on your phone? Uh, probably that salute guy, since they added that one, the like the oh. straight faced, like, cause it's yeah, not even smiling. It is the straight across. Yeah. And if not that, probably the, uh, the hang 10 hand. <laughs> That's a popular answer too. Mine, I way overuse the thumbs up. <laughs> um, if you could be the best in the world at something, what would it be? <sighs> If I could be the best, I would like to be the best dude possible. Uh, I'm proud of the work I do. I'm proud of, of you know, working within this industry. And obviously, I think it's wonderful that people know me through either my writing or, or my whiskey. But at the end of the day, if that falls away, I'd like to be the best at just not being awful. I mean, like, if, oh no, I, I know Mark and Mark's a great guy and you yeah. know, he's dependable and he's, he, he makes mistakes, but he owns up to him. Uh, you know, he's occasionally pompous, but <laughs> yeah, that, that'd be my, that, that'd probably be my answer. It's just, if I could just be the best dude, I routinely fail at that, but that that's, that's goals. That's what I mean. It's a great for. answer. <laughs> if you had a pet parrot, what would you teach it to say? Uh, now that we have, uh, devices that are constantly listening to us, I'd want to teach it to say something like, Hey, Alexa, or Hey Siri, <laughs> and then just let it go nuts. Uh, I say that until someday I show up at home and there's 82 rolls of toilet paper because yeah. <laughs> the parrot decided to, to sync up with Order. my Amazon account. <laughs> All right. We'll do one more. What is the worst fashion decision you've ever made? <laughs> Some would call it the worst fashion decision. I will fight this tooth and nail. I had a closet full of Jinko jeans. And I, it must I be a function of the, just like the age I t of people I typically have <laughs> as a guest. But Jankos have been brought up a lot to answer that uh, question. <laughs> so I'm I, I'm gonna paint a picture for you. This is Mark A. Veertaller in high school. Black Jinko jeans, and you you know I went with the widest pant leg possible. <laughs> chain wallet. Of with course. the chain wallet going to the wallet having blue flames on the <laughs> nice. wallet. 
and then the Guy Fieri uh, dragon <laughs> shirt special. Nice. While at the same time being like, nah, I'm goth, so my hair was dyed black and I had black painted fingernails. So <laughs> there, there is the meme going around of that guy who's like, my mom told me I could only get Jinkos if she could take photos so I could see how ridiculous I looked as an adult. And he posted <laughs> them and he's like, who's laughing now? I was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I also had oh, frosted man, tips for a short, short while. And that was a did. terrible fashion decision. <laughs> I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm giving away a lot about my youth in this interview. <laughs> and I'm enjoying it. I'm glad we ended on that question. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for your time today, Mark. Uh, hey, I can't wait to try Chris, thank, the, thank the line. Thank you so places. much it's it's an honor to be asked on again and it's just such a pleasure every time and i'm sorry and, we it took me this long to make it happen I, I don't you know there's there's things things have come up in the past yes. couple of years <laughs> and <just> few <laughs> i also would have felt awkward you know we we were available in maryland for a while and then unfortunately the distributor we had fell through and so i would have been felt odd being like hey we're t talking about all this really good whiskey yeah. and no one can get it but we're yeah. available in maryland again and that so that makes me happy to be like one i just want an excuse to to hang out and and shoot with you but also you know i the work probably would be happy that I'm, you know, doing yeah. that subtle plug at the end of you can buy us. <laughs> thank you, Mark. And thank you everyone for listening. Cheers. Cheers. The Uncapped podcast is produced by Graham Cullen and me, Chris Sands. Be sure to like us on Facebook. And if you've enjoyed these podcasts, please leave us a review on Google play or the iTunes store. A special thanks to double motorcycle for providing our theme music. Thanks for listening. Oh my God, that's good.